All right. Today's sermon, I have a title for today's sermon. It's Breaking Down Barriers to the Gospel. We're in 1 Corinthians. Paul's coming to faith. This is Paul's the guy who wrote the letter to the Corinthians. Paul's coming to faith was not reasoned. He had a miraculous experience face-to-face with Jesus. The glory of God who disabled him on the road to Damascus. At that time, Paul was, what was his name? Saul. Saul. That's right. A Pharisee who was driven by a zealous passion to eradicate Christians everywhere. He was a willing witness to the death of Stephen, who was one of the very first deacons. And during the persecution that broke out, Paul personally sought to destroy the church by capturing Christians and bringing them to judgment. Actually, that's what he was on the way to do when he was on the road to Damascus. But Paul's life was forcibly changed. God took this man who was on a mission to destroy the church and weakened him in an instant. Jesus himself commissioned him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He said in Acts 26, 17 through 18, I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now I forgot to actually transfer the scriptures to the slides so you get to open your Bible today. So here is this man, his prior life destroyed by God, now an enemy to the Jews and still feared by Christians. Do you see this difficult position that Paul is in now? He was this zealous Pharisee who persecuted Christians. God disables him and he now has this growing relationship with Christ. He is a believer. He has met God face to face. But his, own pe- but his new people are scared of him as well. So he really has nobody at this point. But by God's revelation, Paul is given the gospel and empowered by God to bring the saving message to the world. The Jews hated the Gentiles. They considered them unholy. To even associate or to eat with them was looked down on. And now this holy Jewish Pharisee has been called to bring the good news about the one he previously hated to the people he previously despised. Paul's life was sacrificed forcibly. He lost everything for the sake of Christ. And in his loss, God would use him to save the lowest and forgotten of society, not only in his generation... But all the way up to our present age, Paul is the most impactful apostle that existed. And he was the lowest of the low. He was the least qualified. You would think as a Jew and as a Pharisee, he would have been tasked to preach to the Jews. But God stripped him of everything. And repurposed him and reformed him for his evangelistic mission. Paul's life was sacrificed. He lost everything for the sake of Christ. And in his loss, God would use him to save the lowest. 
It is because of the work that God did in Paul that you and I know Jesus today. It really is. And we hold several of his letters in our hands in Scripture. He was pastor, apostle, and missionary. Paul's contribution to the church in Corinth was extensive. The Corinthian church was one that he had planted about 22 years after the resurrection of Jesus. How long after? About 22 years afterwards. His love and care for the people there persisted even as he traveled far and wide to bring the gospel to that region. We could easily make the observation that Paul was a gifted evangelist. Now, as disciples, we are called to live as Jesus demonstrated and to proclaim his name as Savior. That's the good news that we can't keep to ourselves. And Paul had that same attitude. In chapter 9, we are going to see Paul's evangelistic approach. How he reached so many people. How God used him to change the world. And hopefully we can learn from his life and experience and apply what he's teaching to the Corinthians to our lives as well. Remember that these chapter numbers are completely arbitrary. They're just kind of made up. We, we put them there to help break up scripture and to make it consumable. So I'm going to backtrack just a little bit into 8 so we can get some context of 9. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, please. Turn there. Right after Romans. First Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 9 through 13. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against God. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall in sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Who here is willing to become a vegetarian for the rest of us? Anybody? Hmm? You willing to become a vegetarian for me? That's his attitude. This is Paul's, this is what he's calling all of us, the same attitude, the sacrifice of our freedom for the salvation and the freedom of others. We'll get to more of that. Paul uses his freedom and what he knows not as a weapon, but instead willingly sacrifices it for the sake of others. And despite doing so, even as a selfish, selfless servant to the church, Paul has to prove and defend himself from the very people he serves. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 23, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? The answer to all those is, Yes. <laughs> Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 
The answer to his rhetorical questions is all, is all yes. And to top it off, the very fact that the church exists in Corinth is because of Paul. So his evidence as an apostle is based off of the people he's writing this letter to, the people who are attacking him. They themselves, that is the Corinthians, is the proof that he is an apostle. He says in verse 3, This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right not to work for a living? It's interesting kind of the way he words that. Like what he's doing isn't, isn't work, right? He's sacrificing his entire life. His job is 24-7. What is the accusation we can reasonably conclude that he is facing? That he was lazy? What else? Well, he's running a scam, profiting as a preacher. That he's running a scam, profiting as a preacher. That he's he's just trying to be that little fish that hangs onto the edge of the whale and just, you know, that little leech. Paul They think he's out for money or to take advantage of them. That he can't be married, or that he must have a second job to survive. Paul counters this argument with clear examples. Verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? The answer is nobody. Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much that we reap a material harvest from you? He's saying, what I'm, what I'm doing is eternal. And everything else here is temporary. Is it, is it really too much to ask that you support him, right? Jesus gives instructions to his 72 disciples recorded in Luke 10. So we can flip over to Luke 10. Keep your place in, in 1 Corinthians. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 10, verse 7. He's giving them instructions for their evangelistic mission. He says, Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. This verse is even quoted in Paul's letter to Timothy, which combines both the wages and the oxen instruction together. I'll read that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. The elders who direct the affairs of the church are well, are well, excuse me, of the church, well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work, whose work is preaching and teaching. 
For scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. The worker and the worker deserves his wages. Let's flop back over to 1 Corinthians there. Verse 12 of chapter 9. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. I have that underlined here. He put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He would become a vegetarian for you, changing his entire life and and what he eats. He would refrain from anything in order to reach you and to break those barriers that would keep you from receiving the gospel and being one of God's people. Verse 13 says, Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? Or that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from it. Or from the gospel, excuse me. This is the reason we should care for the needs of elders who serve their local church and missionaries who spread the gospel. There is this stigma or assumption about how a church uses and manages its funds when most churches, especially within Rocky Mountain Bible Mission, these rural churches that serve these these small communities, we're kind of blessed because here at Priest Lake, we live in a resort town, right? But most of the churches in Rocky Mountain Bible Mission are dead-end, middle-of-nowhere. There's, there's no work. There's, no, there's people there, but there isn't this prosperous kind of thing like we have here. There's not this. Can you imagine what life at Priest Lake would be like if we didn't have the summer bumper crop that came through to like infuse our economy with people and, and funds and resources and all that kind of stuff? We would suffer. We would suffer. So most of these pastors have to work multiple jobs. I personally know a pastor who had to leave the church that called him because he was drowning in debt for the schooling that was required to take the job in the first place. Right? Most pastors have to have a master's degree at a minimum to be able to serve as pastor in a church. Most denominations kind of fall into those credentials or those categories. He burned up his savings and he lived in relative poverty just to continue to serve his church. But with no way out of his sinking financial situation, he had to move on for his family. We get frustrated when our missionaries have to come back to the States to do fundraising tours. But how often do we forget them? How, if they didn't do those fundraising tours, they wouldn't be able to be supported to do the mission. They wouldn't be able to stay in the field and devote their lives to the people that they serve. The volunteers and paid employees at Christian nonprofits often have to suffer for many years only to be forced to get a real job eventually. They reluctantly leave and with them goes all that experience and that drive for the advancement of the gospel. The average 16 or 18-year-old who desires to devote their life to working at serving the Lord is viewed as foolish 
because it's likely that even their own people are likely not to care for them and support for them. To their detriment, many don't leave until they're in their 30s, and they're 10 years behind their peers, financially or socially. They sacrifice their lives for Christ. This is a great tragedy in the modern church that volunteers and interns, elders and teachers and others suffer without intervention of the people they serve. Most servants in a church end up sacrificing their time and their own money. Just ask anyone who leads gospel advancing efforts in the church like Sunday school or children's church. We can subject ourselves to some challenge here. What are the limitations of our generosity? Didn't God equip us to be the people he uses to care for his people? I mean, think about it. When you had a need, and we've all heard stories of of people having needs of specific amounts for a specific bill at their last need. Did God, like, physically go over and, like, with his big hand, open the mailbox and slip that little tiny envelope in there? No, he used his people to care for his people. And he equipped them to do it. He wants us to love each other. And he equips us with all that we need to make it happen. Corinthians 9, 15 through 18. He says, but I have not used any of these rights. This is what I'm entitled to, but I haven't used any of these rights. I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. I would rather die than for you to think that I do this for money. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. I have to do it. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily... I will have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. If I don't do it voluntarily, then it's just my job. Is my mic cutting out again? (coughs) Really? That's weird. You could probably... When you back up, it goes off. When you move forward, it goes on. Well, I don't really need it anyway. So stand still. (laughs) Come on. We're not... We'll look for miracles, but I don't know about that one, no. He says, what then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. And so not make use, full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. He does all of it so that he can give the gospel for free. The the news about the sacrifice of Jesus' life in our place for our sin Securing forgiveness that we don't deserve. It is the gift of God that brings life to all who accept it. How can I charge for something that was given to me for free? It's the most valuable thing in the world, worth more than any life experience or all the wealth exists. It is worth more than my time, my family, my life. This right here sums up the attitude of God's servants. 
People who give everything to bring others to saving faith in Jesus. We have to do it. Nobody does it for the money. We do it to honor our Lord and to love his people. The quilts, the cards, the meals, the late nights, all of it we are compelled to do. Amen? Amen. The idea of being paid for those things that God influenced us to do is highly offensive to our motivations because we didn't do it for money. We were motivated by the love of God. While we didn't do it to be paid, we can't reject compensation out of pride either. Because it's equally offensive to reject the care and generosity of people who have been blessed by the love of God. The gospel, that is the the truth of Jesus and what he did for us, is offered free to everyone. There is no cost of entry, no bar you have to meet, no place you have to be, no condition you must be in. Because Christ is sufficient and nothing stands in the way to accept the life lived with, and for God. Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, let's continue. Paul says, Though I am free, I belong, and belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Highlight. Cut it out. Tape it to your fridge. This sums up his attitude of his life. What does Paul reserve for himself? That he keeps from from others. What ounce of energy or resources that Paul has that he's, he's held back? Even what some people would call his identity or how he defines himself or, or what he does He's willing to sacrifice for others. Paul removed money as a barrier to the gospel, and now we see his attitude stated again. Verse 20 says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. What does that mean? He did stuff he didn't have to do. He kept rules he didn't have to keep in order to win them. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessing. Let me give you another example of this attitude. There's often something I think goes unconsidered by service members and civilians alike. That is the the cost of military service, right? 
before you join, you usually fail to grasp the depth of the sacrifice it's going to take. Maybe you have this idea in your mind, you're going to run through the jungle with something cool. It's going to be explosions behind you, and like people are going to, yay! You don't understand the toll that you will pay to serve. Simply put, to preserve the freedom of your nation, your family, and your home, you will have to sacrifice your own freedom. You can't go where you want to go. You can't say what you want to say. You can't wear what you want to wear. You can't eat what you want to eat. You can't do what you want to do or hang out with the people that you want to hang out with. You sacrifice birthdays and births, marriages and families. You can't sleep when you want to or even choose the duties of your occupation. You have no ownership of your body or opinions you can share. You don't choose where you live or the places you travel to, the length of your hair, or the people that you spend every moment with. Or even what time you'll get off work. You could quit, but you would face prison time and be considered essentially a felon. And for all of this, you volunteered. You willingly raise your right hand and forsake your freedom. Why? To save, to protect, to serve, and to love. You might have initially joined to do something cool or to have a stable career, but it doesn't take long to realize that the suffering you endure does not make it worth it. The true treasure is the selfless service, the love and the care you show towards others, preserving and willingly sacrificing your freedom for the life and freedom of everyone else. Or shooting machine guns, that's pretty cool too. Paul sacrificed his freedom for the eternal life of others. He even did things he didn't have to, like performing rituals or refraining from certain things. But through all of it, he didn't give in to sin. He didn't compromise himself. See, God had empowered him with the freedom that he had given him to sacrifice his freedom. He didn't give in to sin or compromise himself, but he broke down barriers to the gospel, money, culture, all of it. He sacrificed his freedom to bring people to Christ. So for us, what does that sacrifice look like? I normally leave it open-ended for you to consider the answer. But try these on to see if any of them fit. Are you creating political barriers? Do you condemn those who drink alcohol? Do you knowingly partake in such things while your brother suffers? Do you create cultural checkpoints that people have to pass before they make the grade? Or that they can be considered real Christians? Do you make arbitrary rules 
Do your firearms make people feel safe or unsafe? Does a Christian look, smell, and act just like you? Do you insist that people come to church to find God? Or are you willing to bring Christ to them wherever and however they may be? Can you engage others without condemnation or disgust at their life choices? Can you connect with all people while not partaking in their sin? Can you honor them as God's masterpiece, made in his image, no matter how hard they try to distort it? What does the sacrifice of freedom look like for you? John 4, where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. I'd love for you to read that later. It's relatively short. Amazing example. But let me close up by reading this. Luke 5, 27 through 32. Luke 5, 27 through 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, our true and one desire, Lord, is to honor you. And we know your commands, Lord, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength with all that we have and to love the people that you have created, Lord. So, Father, reveal to us the ways that we haven't loved people or that we have refused to love people. Show us the things that we are putting in the way of your work, that we are putting in the way of our own testimony, that we are putting in the way of the gospel, Lord. Father, we pray that you would make us like Paul. That you would preserve the innocence of our children, Lord. Protect them from our ideas, Lord. That you would train them the way you want them to be trained. Lord, that they would sacrifice their lives for you. That they would go all in and hold nothing back, Lord. But that they would use this short temporary life, Lord, for the glory of the eternal one with you. Father, we pray that in your son Jesus' name. Amen.